Good morning. Some of you may be wondering what I'm doing up here. Bob is in Tennessee this weekend preaching a wedding, and since he's away, that gave me an opportunity to prepare a message for you. It's actually a message that's been on my heart for quite some time. It's about 1 Corinthians 13 and its relationship to spiritual gifts. Uh, Lord willing, God, Bob will be back next week, and he'll continue our series on spiritual gifts in chapter 14. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a very familiar chapter of Scripture, is it not? Both inside the church and outside the church, it's something that we hear a lot about. I suppose it's probably up there with Psalm 23 as one of the most popular chapters of Scripture. Let me show you some examples of why I think I can safely assert this. There we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has been adopted by our pop culture. I did a Google search on the quotation, love is patient, love is kind, came up with 152,000 hits, which means there are at least 152,000 web pages that quote from this chapter. That's a, just under one quote for every 2,000 Americans. It's a very popular chapter. You'd be amazed at the things that people do with this chapter. Up here you see one example. If you go to this website, sunnycorner.com, you can get this attractive e-card that you can send to someone that quotes eight verses from our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is also used to move merchandise. Christmas is coming up. You look there on your left, you have the Love is Patient women's pink t-shirt. I imagine they could probably rush that to you if you needed it quickly. We also have the Love is Patient Mug is Large cup up here. I happen to like coffee quite a bit, so that's attractive to me. Uh, but there are a lot of things that are sold today that have this text on them. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has been appropriated by those who would help us with our marriages. This is a, a book called Love is Patient, Love is Kind, Inspirations and Meditations for Brides by a lady named Candy Chand. You can get this on Amazon or other places on the web. I took a look at the table of contents for this book, and it has one chapter for each parts of the description of love that we find in verses 4 through 8. So not only does this text provide inspiration for brides, but often when those brides get to the altar, they see this text again, don't they? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is used as a reading or as a sermon text for many weddings. Bob assures me, by the way, that he's not preaching at Jeff's wedding this weekend on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Perhaps he'll opt for 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for Jeff, the way he did for my wedding. Got a couple laughs. If you don't know why that's funny, take a look at chapter 7, and you'll see why it was funny. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is also trotted out to make guests feel welcome. Here's a lovely set of guest tiles, each with a scripture reference embroidered on it. And I'm not sure I'd be comfortable wiping my hands on that in your bathroom, uh, but maybe the guest tiles really aren't about wiping your hands anyway. Maybe they're just for the show. 1 Corinthians 13 is also a favorite of bloggers. Here's just one example of that, and there are many out there. Uh, this interesting fellow, uh, Mark Gunn, is pictured here. Make sure he's up there. Yes, he is. He's pictured there gazing at his glass of ale, and the text underneath that you probably can't read says, Mark is an Irish and Scottish folk singer with a strange affinity for Celtic ballads, drinking songs, and cats. Our text is printed on Mark's blog in its entirety in the New American Standard, and I spent a little time trying to figure out why, and I couldn't figure it out. 
So I poked around on his website and tried to figure out if he was a believer and if the names of any of the bands that he's been playing in are an indication, I would say he's probably not a believer. But anyway, he likes our text as well. I could go on doing this all day. Uh, this is the last one I'll share, though. 1 Corinthians 13 is used for political purposes. We have here an organization called Christian Alliance for Progress, the movement to reclaim Christianity and transform American politics. Now, after reading their positions on social issues, I think they're trying to reclaim Christianity from people like us. But they like our text as well. In this example, 1 Corinthians 13 is used to argue against draconian, immoral budget cuts from 2006. So it's pretty stretchy, our text. Uh, just a few minutes ago, I was talking to Ali, and he mentioned that in wedding ceremonies in Pakistan, this text is used. They read it, they attribute it to the, the scriptures, and they, they like it so much in Pakistan, it's part of their, their wedding ceremonies there as well. Now, is this really what this passage is about? Are these good examples of what we ought to be doing with 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Well, in short, this chapter is everywhere. We see it in the church, and we see it in the world. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? Hebrews 4.12 tells us, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, we've all heard stories where a small verse or a snippet of scripture has been used mightily by God. And this text is no different. It's good that it's out there. It's good that people read the scriptures. However, there is a troubling implication of the things that I've shown you in my mind. It's that this text is so easily embraced. It's as if this has been deemed safe for public consumption. We've taken this text, the world has, and we've, we've neutralized it, we've reinterpreted it, we've turned it into a sappy love poem, and we use it for whatever we wish. And that's wrong. Scripture that is properly understood is not safe for public consumption. It convicts men of their sins, it directs their thoughts to a just and holy God, and properly understood, Scripture has the power to reveal the sinfulness of men, and then it places them under conviction of judgment, and it also saves them if they keep reading. But Scripture is not safe, and this text is no different. This idea reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You might remember the character Lucy, one of those little girls in the story, was asking Mrs. Beaver, or I'm sorry, Mr. Beaver, if Aslan, who was the fierce lion, sort of the symbolic character of Christ, was safe. And this is what Mr. Beaver said. Mr. Beaver said, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And scripture is like this as well. It is not safe, though it is always good. We don't get to appropriate passages of scripture and do whatever we want to with them. We must go to the scriptures. We must search out the meaning that God has for the scriptures that he intended. We must understand it as the Holy Spirit makes us able. Lastly, the applications of this text do vary, even in Christian circles. You see them do a lot of different things with this text. But I hope to demonstrate to you this morning that the text, this text, the proper context for it, is of spiritual gifts, and we should be thinking about this passage and using it in the context of spiritual gifts. Sure, it contains some truth that you can use in different areas of life and different relationships, but its primary purpose is to explain spiritual gifts and how they're to be uh, used in the church. So my outline this morning will begin with the context of the chapter, 
And then we can easily divide the book into three parts. The first three verses look at the connection between love and the exercise of spiritual gifts. And we'll spend some time on the description of love that we see in verses 4 through 7. Uh, lastly, at the end, verses 8 through 13, uh, give us some observations regarding the primacy of love over gifts. And then I hope to give you some practical suggestions for ways that we can apply this text as we seek to exercise our spiritual gifts. Context. In this series, Bob has endeavored to keep all four of the main spiritual gift passages in front of us each week as we go through them. And he's even recommended that we read them each week, that we read from Romans 12, that we read from 1 Corinthians 12, that we read from Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4 each week. And that's helpful when we approach this question of what is the proper context of 1 Corinthians 13. As I said a moment ago, this chapter, I think, can only be properly understood in the context of spiritual gifts. And so, as I see it, it's directly linked to the material in chapter 12. Um, If I'm right about this, we ought to be able to see some evidence of that link between spiritual gifts and love in the other three main uh, passages that we've worked through so far in our study. I think such evidence does exist. Romans 12 seems to fit the pattern. 12, 1 through 8 is the text that we spent a lot of time on, describing spiritual gifts and how we're to use them. But it's followed by verses 9 through 16, which describe how members of the body should treat one another. Verses 9 and 10 deal directly with love. Uh, Verse 9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. And verse 10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So Paul moves from instructions regarding the exercise of spiritual gifts in Romans 12 to instructions regarding love. This implies to me that instructing the church to exercise spiritual gifts without talking about love, without teaching the connection between them, is somehow incomplete. You can also see this link between love and spiritual gifts in Ephesians 4. Uh, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And after that, the, uh, the section on spiritual gifts comes, and then after the spiritual gifts section, he says, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So in these two passages, the saints at Ephesus are implored by Paul to love one another, though admittedly with a little less specificity and detail than in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. One might wonder if the overall health of the church at Ephesus, which was superior to the church at Corinth, may have been one reason why Paul could get away with not using more time on love when he speaks to the church in the book of Ephesians. Similarly, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, the encouragement to love is placed before the teaching on spiritual gifts, with encouragement regarding persecution coming afterwards. And I'd suggest that maybe you go back and take a look at those verses and see if you think I'm right that there is a parallel in the uh, spiritual gift passage in 1 Peter uh, with what we see, what I assert that we're seeing in chapters 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians. So uh, one conclusion I think we can make based on this is that instructions related to spiritual gifts seem to be linked, bracketed in the case of Ephesians, with exhortations regarding love. We see it in all four texts. So what can we learn about the context of chapter 13 from the overall structure of the book of 1 Corinthians? Well, one might imagine Paul rolling up his sleeves to write this letter, 
I'm sure his adrenaline was running high. He had a long list of problems that he needed to address in this church, and he was going to take up each of those problems and address them directly, but he didn't pick them up in a random order. He was very purposeful and deliberate and systematic with the way he wrote. On the screen up behind me, yes, it's there, uh, you see a, a little pyramid there at the bottom. It's my kind of cute way of trying to create a structure to show you what I think he's doing in the book of First Corinthians in the way that he ordered the problems that he addressed. Uh, at the bottom, chapters 1 through 4, Paul starts with the very fundamentals. He deals with the issue of divisions in that church, and he spends several chapters working on that problem, pointing the, the saints in Corinth to the fact that Christ Jesus is the one foundation for all of the saints in that church. So he works on that for a while, and then he turns to gross immorality. He looks at, chap- in chapters 5 and 6, he looks at the problems in that church that were causing even the pagans around the church to be aghast at what they were seeing going on in the church at Corinth. He also talked about uh, brothers in Christ that were hauling one another into pagan courts to settle disputes, things that were causing the witness of that church to be compromised in the world. After that, in chapters, uh, chapter 7, Paul turns inside the church to problems going on that aren't affecting the world at large, but he addresses issues with marriage and divorce. Afterwards, he keeps moving up the structure, and he starts working on things that are still significant, but maybe not quite as fundamental as the things that went previously in chapters 1 through 7. He addresses rights and the problem of the weaker brother. He also turns in chapter 11 to the meeting of the church, and he has a lot to say about the way the Corinthian saints were getting together and the way they were conducting themselves in the meeting of the church. So he's moving up the ladder of abstraction here. Finally, in in chapter 12, he gets the spiritual gifts. This isn't so much a problem. It is somewhat of a problem, but it's also an opportunity for Paul to teach this church about their gifts so that they can use those gifts to be self-correcting and self-erecting as they build the church. Chapter 13 is the last stage in this construction project. I would assert that it represents the last missing element that this church needs, It is love. It's the one additional thing that needs to be included in this church in order to put it on a right footing. Chapter 13, I would assert, is the climax of the book. The first 12 chapters are building up to chapter 13, and chapter 13 uh, would complete the structure. It's what a well-functioning church needs in order to serve God and honor him properly. Chapter 14, which I don't show here, is actually a case study on how to apply chapters 12 and 13 together simultaneously in serving the church. Chapter 15 deals with doctrinal issues surrounding the resurrection, then Paul signs off in 16. So as I see it, the structure of the book points in a strong way to a connection between spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and love in chapter 13. Now the last piece of evidence I want to bring up is verse 1231, which Ray read a few minutes ago, and it should be in yellow on the screen up there. It says, But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. Now, this verse is the segue between the chapters. It points back at the exercise of gifts in chapter 12, even the the, uh, greater gifts, and it sets up chapter 13 by priming us as the reader or the hearer to receive a description of what this most excellent way is. That's coming in chapter 13. So Paul's done a lot of heavy lifting in the first 12 chapters of the book, but he hasn't yet covered the most important topic, and that's something more valuable than exercising spiritual gifts, even the greater gifts. So finally, we get to the text. Let's read the first three verses. And 
That's fairly large. You might be able to even read it up there. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So let's make some general observations about these three verses. First, Paul doesn't really offer any logic or defense of his assertions in these verses. He seems to rest solely on his apostolic authority. Paul personalizes this issue. He makes these three assertions in the first person. I think he does this for two reasons. First, it provides an example of speaking gently in love to this church. In other words, Paul's not calling out individuals that are doing things contrary to this teaching and not using them uh, as examples here. And we've seen this once before in the letter when Paul masks the identity of the divisions within the church by using other names. And secondly, it emphasizes the universal nature of his claims. Paul, acting as an apostolic teacher here, applies this text to himself. So if this is true of Paul, then the reader need not spend a lot of time wondering if this applies to them as well. Paul also engages in a bit of hyperbole here. He pushes the envelope using examples beyond their logical extremes. It's not just speaking in tongues. It's speaking with the tongues of angels. It's not just having great faith. It's having faith that moves mountains. Similarly, in verse 3, it's not just giving all one's possession to the poor. It's giving one's very body to the poor. This device prevents us from trying to find a loophole. There's not a loophole here for the really, really talented. And I think this is important. It means whatever the gift is, whatever the strength of the gift is, these principles apply. These truths are universally true for the church. In each of these verses, the problem is the same. The exercise of spiritual gifts, even exceptionally strong gifts, in the absence of love. And the consequences of practicing our gifts without love, are dire. I chose that word carefully. They are dire. Paul seems to leave no wiggle room here for us to rationalize our behavior. We can't tell ourselves that skimping on love as we serve isn't optimal, but it really can't be that bad. It's not optional. We can't do that. He's trying to get our attention here. So let's isolate verse 1 for a moment. What does it mean to speak with the tongues of men and angels? Now, the Greek word used here for tongue is glossa, which in the New Testament could be an anatomical word for tongue. It also describes the tongues of fire that we find at the day of Pentecost. It talks about human languages, and it can also be used for the gift of tongues. So it could be any of those things. It's the same word that's used in each case. Uh, considering the fact that Paul has just addressed uh, the gift of tongues in chapter 12, and he's about to come back and talk in, at length about the gift of tongues in chapter 14, I would consider this to be just that. I think he's talking about the gift of tongues. However, at the end of this section, I'm going to make the case that this warning applies to all uh, speaking gifts and all spiritual gifts, so I don't really think it's that important that we uh, narrow our thinking and omit other types of speaking gifts here. Um, An interesting side note is to, to see that the phrase tongues of angels is used nowhere else in the scriptures. Paul's employing it here to make the point This applies even to the most powerful gift of tongues. So how does one speak without love? This could could refer to the motivation to speak, speaking out of some impulse that is not a desire to build up a brother and encourage them or bless them. Or perhaps it's speaking in a harsh and unloving way. Either one would seem to apply, I think. 
And what happens, according to this text, if speaking with, in tongues is done without love? Well, Paul will cover an example of this in chapter 14 that we'll look at next week, where the gift is being used for the benefit of the speaker. But here it tells us that the, the loss of effectiveness is the result of speaking in tongues without loves. Now, this type of speaking has no more value than banging on a steel pot with a big spoon. It may be loud, it may get your attention, but it's not purposeful. It doesn't have any meaning associated with it, and one might also say it's downright irritating. So love is of critical importance. Gifts exercised without love are ineffective. And I believe that is a lesson that's contained in this verse. Now, can we assert that all gifts exercised without love are always ineffective? I don't think we can do that unless we're willing to get rid of the book of Jonah. You remember Jonah? He was a guy that was told by God to go to Nineveh and preach so that that city could be saved. Well, Jonah didn't have any love for those people in Nineveh. Quite the contrary. He actually hated those people. But God made sure, by hook or by crook, that he got to Nineveh. And preach he did. Didn't do a very good job of it. We can read what he said. His heart really wasn't in it. But guess what? The city of Nineveh was saved. Those people were spared. They were not destroyed because they repented after hearing Jonah's message. Now, that's pretty interesting because this is one of the most effective cases of prophetic speaking that we find in the Old Testament. Most of the Old Testament prophets would say their message, and they would get killed, and nobody would repent. Jonah, the people repented, and he didn't get killed. kind of turns everything on its head, doesn't it? Well, Jonah actually, at the end of the book, prays and asks God to take his life to, to complete the reversal. But in that case, I think what we see is God supplied the effect. And we, we also saw that in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 6, that God the Father supplies the effect when gifts are exercised. And that's what happened in Jonah's case. Now, God supplied the effect not through Jonah's love, but in spite of Jonah and in spite of his lack of love. So we cannot shackle God's work with our lack of love. I don't mean to give you that impression this morning. He may choose to use us anyway, the way he did with Jonah. He may choose to use someone else instead of us who has love, but he'll do his work, and we must not assume that we can exercise our gifts without love and still be effective in doing his work. This verse teaches us that things like Jonah, those stories where people that are unloving do God's work, really aren't normative. Let's look at verse 2. This verse adds three other spiritual gifts to the mix. These are prophecy, knowledge, and faith. And again, Paul employs hyperbole to convey that these gifts are at their maximum possible level. Not having love in this case might cause one to fail to utilize these gifts. They may go unused. Not having love in this case might cause someone to have a motivation other than love in exercising these gifts, or it could cause one to utilize their gifts in an unloving, harsh way. Person possessing all three of these exceptional gifts who doesn't have love is said here to be nothing. He or she has no standing in the church, according to this statement. This claim was most likely a shock and an affront to the church at Corinth. Those were people that were very conscious of the spiritual pecking order in their church. They were very interested and proud of their place in that pecking order. And they weren't keeping score this way. This is telling us that God who looks at the heart while men look at the outside grades on the basis of love. Jesus said pretty much the same thing in Matthew 20, 25 through 28. And I'll read it for you. You don't need to turn there. But Jesus called them, his disciples, to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. 
And whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It is great love that makes one great in God's economy. Love that follows the example of Christ who loved us all the way to the cross. A lack of love makes one nothing, regardless of the service or the quality of the gifts that are being used. Verse 3 adds another spiritual gift. That's the gift of giving. Now, in this case, the issue is one of improper motivation. Non-loving motivations like pride or drawing attentions to oneself are hard issues, and often those are hard to spot. People usually don't know if that's going on. Improper motivations in giving may affect the size of the gift, but the example used in this verse doesn't suggest it. That gift is at its maximum size, you might say. Because the size of the gift here seems unimportant, it would seem that the importance of giving really is the expression of love that it makes, not the gift itself. The consequence of improper giving is said to be here a loss of the blessing that could have been obtained by the giver. In this scenario, the giver does not get to store up treasure in heaven if he or she is giving with motives that are not based on love. Now, I want to be careful here and, and make sure that I'm clear that the blessing that comes from giving or exercising any spiritual gift is not salvation. Paul is speaking to believers. These are people that know the Lord Jesus and have repented and asked forgiveness for their sins. They are already in the kingdom of God. Their sins have been dealt with. The blessings that are at risk here for exercising gifts without love are the joy and the peace that we get, the satisfaction that we get from being used by God, and plus that storing up of treasures in heaven that we don't fully understand. Someday we will. Uh, we don't get to do that when we don't exercise our love, our gifts with love. So what does all this mean? What is the point? It means that it's not about the talent, the level of giftedness at all. It's about the love. Love is the key ingredient that must be present as we exercise our spiritual gifts. And I'll go one step farther. With enough love, the giftedness or the talent that you have will be sufficient for the work that God has for you to do. Say that again. If you have enough love, your talent, your giftedness will be sufficient to do the work that God has for you. It will make the impact that God the Father wants at your service to have. Again, it's God the Father who gives the effect, 1 Corinthians 12.6. He is supplying the effects, and we need to supply the conduit for the love. That's our role. These verses contain a concept I call negation, the loss of effectiveness, the loss of personal status, the loss of spiritual benefit that comes from exercising gifts without love is negation of those things. Negation is strong stuff. If you're going to exercise your spiritual gifts without love, you might as well just not waste your time. This is a tough text. One last thing to note, I don't believe each of those negative impacts that we see in each of these three verses relates only to the verse that contains it. For instance, I would argue that a loss of effectiveness doesn't come solely from speaking without love, but your effectiveness will suffer if you exercise any of the gifts without love. If you're a teacher, if you have the gift of helps, and you're doing those things without love, you're not going to be effective in the grand scheme. I think these three verses have overlapping consequences, and I think the fact that Paul picks a couple of gifts to talk about here isn't meant to limit our thinking only to these gifts, but he's using examples to suggest the full range of gifts. Obviously, he couldn't put the whole range of gifts here because you'd have to go to three different texts and there are three different lists and it gets very complicated. Paul's message here is simple. We shouldn't make it too hard. He's saying any gift that you exercise without love, you're at risk for not being effective. You're at risk for 
not being uh, blessed or receiving a blessing from it, and you're you're also uh, you're also at risk for your personal status. You will be nothing in the church. The next check, uh, section of the chapter contains a description of love between the saints and the body. Uh, as a transition, I'd like to read a quote from Ray Steadman from back in 1979. Even I was young then. Uh, it's long, so I broke it up into two slides, and I'm going to read it for you. The word love, I will point out before we look at this, is not the Greek word eros. That word is used to describe erotic love, sensual love, what you feel when you fall in love, a passionate attraction to another person. That kind of love is not even mentioned in the Word of God, strangely enough, though it is a common form of love today. And the word here is not philia, which means affection, friendship, and a feeling of warmth towards someone else. This, too, is a universally distributed love, but is not what is mentioned here. Paul is talking about agape, which is a commitment of the will to cherish and uphold another person. Now, this is really all I want to say about the different forms of the word love in Greek. Uh, I think sometimes we make too much of those distinctions. I think that if we focus too much on agape just being a choice, that we might slip into a mindset that says, if I'm doing the right things, it doesn't really matter where my heart is. And I also think that uh, God is a God of passionate love. Don't we see that in the scriptures? We see his passion in the Gospels, in the, the work and the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think when we endeavor to love one another and we, when we choose to love someone and we choose to do loving actions, it doesn't leave us just to be sterile and cold as we serve. Now, the, those feelings may come later, but the Spirit bring the, brings those to us. At least that's been my experience. So this description of love, I knew that we were going to have to go through this quickly, verses 4 through 8a. It's a wonderful description, and in the interest of time, I've done some grouping, just making sure we're still in sync. Uh, group those terms that we find in verses 4 through 8, and I'm not going to go, attempt to go into detail on every single one of them. You can find that in lots of places. Many uh, good writers and teachers have done that. Uh, one book that I'll probably plug later as well is Leading with Love by our friend Alex Strauch. Alex was here last February and taught and, and fellowshiped with us. He did a great job uh, on this text in that book. You might want to look at that. And I've also taken these descriptions from the NIV in case you notice that there's been a little speed bump in the translations. Um, let's start at the top. Love is patient and kind. Now, kindness isn't hard to understand, is it? Matthew 7.12 says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Kindness is simply treating others the way we'd like to be treated, isn't it? Preferring to meet their needs, even if it means we have to lay down ours. I think it is. Kindness is a simple idea, but it's a very high standard. We need to wrestle with kindness. We need to wrestle with what it means in different situations in life. Patience is nothing more than being kind repeatedly over the long haul. As the object of our kindness causes us pain, you get the idea. Patience is kindness in work clothes. It fits, doesn't it? Patience is maintaining your kindness over the long haul, that kind demeanor, choosing to do things that are kind, even when you're tired, even when you've been treated unfairly, even when you've been irritated nine other times by the situation or by this individual, you keep choosing to be kind. That's patience. Patience isn't just waiting quietly for Christmas. It's toughness in the interest of being kind. Now, let me say a word about what patience and kindness are not. It's not a rationale to neglect dealing with sin in a biblical way. Certainly, Paul would say that as well, right? He's been dealing with sin all the way up through chapter 13 in this text, and yet here he's exhorting us to be patient and kind. Sometimes... Uh, a well-needed rebuke done in love is the most kind thing we can do for a brother or a sister in Christ. Discipline is kind. 
We discipline our children as a kindness to them and out of love. And discipline within the church is the same way. We must, however, be sure that we're doing these things in love. Now, I've grouped envious, boastful, proud, and self-seeking on the second line. The common theme I see in those terms is self-interest. The person who exhibits these negative qualities and thereby violates the concept of love is in it for himself or herself. Their exercise of their gifts is all about them, how it makes them feel, how it makes them look to others, where it places them on the pecking order. Even if their gifts are exemplary, the exercise of those gifts would not be characterized by joy or peace. These are often unhappy people who are not able to be truly effective in exercising their gifts, and they do not feel blessed after they serve. Next, I've grouped rude and easily angered. This kind of person reacts badly at times, maybe often. They tell themselves they're reacting with righteous indignation, but their eruptions usually come from a lack of self-control or a lack of humility. Sometimes there's an aura of fear around these people, and some of the saints might feel as if they're walking on eggshells around them. Even when this person's right about something, they tend to overcorrect. They do say and do things that are just uh, more damaging than fixing the problem. Next, love keeps no record of wrongs. A person who does not keep a record of wrongs, I'm sorry, a person who does keep a record of wrongs is keeping score, probably not forgiving others as they should. They're remembering the things that others do that are wrong, and they're storing those away for use later. They're not acting in love. Now, God doesn't treat us this way, does he? When we come to him and we confess our sins and he forgives us, he doesn't keep bringing those back to us and putting them before us. Now, we may be painfully aware of those habitual sins that we struggle with, and the Holy Spirit will continually convict us of our sin, but God really does forgive our sins totally. He delights to forgive us, and he delights to forget our sins. We must become like him in this way. Now, what can we say about a person, as we see up here, in the body of Christ who delights in evil? Now, why would anybody do that? I think this person delights in evil because they feel they're in competition with others. They're also not keeping score the right way. Instead of delighting in God-honoring service, no matter who renders it or the things that bring glory to God, and properly grieving when a brother stumbles, this person might see things as a zero-sum competition. They might delight if a brother falls. Now, this person is not properly interested in the health of the body or God's glory. This person hasn't yet latched on to the mission of the church and his or her role in it. They need to be taught. They need to be encouraged. Possibly they need to be rebuked. They need to understand that we should delight with the truth and with righteousness. Let's skip down to love protects. Uh, one thing we get from this part is the constancy of love. The qualities that make up love are enduring. They don't fade in or out based on how we feel or the difficulty of the circumstances of the individual. The level of performance we're called to here doesn't change as our moods change or we get tired. I'd also like to point out that love directs us to care for others. Protecting the weak, trusting, not assuming the worst about someone. How easy is it to do that? Hoping for the best for all and being willing to go the distance with the saints, even in the most trying times, all have a role to play in love. Finally, love never fails. Never. Well, how is that? How can love fail? Well, love can fail by ending, by giving in to the temptation that we talked about before to have these other qualities, to display these other characteristics in our lives. James Dobson wrote a book entitled Love Must Be Tough. Well, tough indeed. Love is a life sentence. We'd better gear up for the long haul. I'm going to skip the next slide. Um, my basic point here is when we exercise our gifts, we need to think about our motivations. We need to think about the tools and the methods that we use. And we need to think about how we want to be uh, seen by others that might use us for an example 
And we need to make sure that our exercise of our gifts is done in love, and it fits the description of that list that we just talked about. For instance, our motivation for love or or motivation for serving should be patience and kindness. It should not be envy or self-centeredness. So you can apply that yourselves. Um, And it's it's a worthy thing to think through that description and think about how it applies to how we exercise our spiritual gifts. We should be on love endures. Very good. Now we're going to move through pretty quickly verses 8 through 13, which comprise the third and last section of the chapter. In this passage, Paul does two things. First, he reveals the future of spiritual gifts. And second, he makes one final argument about the supremacy of love. In verse 8, Paul makes a startling statement. He contrasts love, which he states never fails, with gifts, which he says will eventually cease. So in the long run, I guess it solves Bob's problem from last week. I guess we're all cessationalists when you get to the end. Paul lists three gifts in this verse, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And for a second time in this chapter, we're forced to take a look at a partial list of gifts and wonder what it means. This list is interesting. It includes tongues and prophecy. Those are going to be juxtaposed in chapter 14. Those are some pretty uh, flashy gifts. But it also lists uh, the gift of knowledge, which is non-miraculous, and more of a conventional-type spiritual gift. As I see it, the three gifts listed here are intended to be examples which represent the entire list of spiritual gifts that we've been talking about for all of these weeks. Paul is telling us here that all spiritual gifts will cease at some point in the future. Now, after Paul makes his statement about cessation, he gives his justification in verses 9 and 10. He uses knowledge and prophecy as his examples, and he states that they are imperfect in the current age, but that perfection will come making the imperfect obsolete and not necessary. What is this perfect perfection that's going to come? Verse 12 gives us that direction. It's something that we partially know now, but will be able to know fully when it comes. It's something, or better yet, someone that even now fully knows us, knows all about us, but we only know him indirectly. We will be able to know him fully when we see him face to face. This is the Lord Jesus. He was perfect in obedience to the Father. He was the perfect lamb that was slain for us. We will see him face to face in his perfection when he returns. Till then, he fully knows us, but we can only indirectly know him. Hebrews 7.28 tells us, For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Jesus is this perfect son. So why do the gifts cease when Christ returns? Back in the beginning of the book, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 1, 7, and 8, uh, the text tells us that spiritual gifts have been given to the church for its use while it awaits the return of Christ, who will perfect the saints when he comes. So if the purpose of spiritual gifts, as we saw in Ephesians 4, is to equip the saints for service and to be used to build up the body of Christ, they're desperately needed right now, aren't they? We need to be exercising these gifts to build one another up into the body of Christ, and the church is acting now in the current age as the body of Christ in his absence. When he returns, he himself will perfect the saints. We won't need to have gifts for our use in building one another up. Jesus will perfect us himself. Now, there will be work for us to do. I don't know what all that means, but the the spiritual gifts will not be there in order to build up the body of Christ. That's what Paul is telling us in this passage. So I'd like to move uh, with the last few minutes we have remaining to some practical suggestions for you. 
the standard that we find in this text, being motivated by love, serving through love, and modeling the love that we see in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus is very high. And I'd like to end with these practical suggestions, suggesting some ways that we can increase our love for the body, some ways that we can serve one another in a more excellent, more loving way. First, let me say that nothing I'm going to say here should be construed as any kind of indictment about the love that is exercised in this body. Quite the contrary. I have seen amazing acts of love and service in this body. I've been the beneficiary of amazing acts of love and service in this body. Love has been a constant here since this assembly was established some 30 years ago. You are a very loving church. And the love that is here, uh, you might think of it as the summation of the love that's being expressed by the people in the church, has sort of a, a sort of a blanketing nice effect on the church. But we have to deal with the, fa- the fact that we each are part of this church, and we each have to serve in love. So my suggestions are intended to answer the question, what should I do if I want to increase my ability to love and serve in love? I think there are some concrete things that we can do. The first is prayer. Now, anytime we face a spiritual problem, we should consider prayer a very good place to begin. Pray that God will increase the love that you have and your desire to share love with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray that God will purify your motives and our motives in service. If you find yourself feeling really very cold and you can't even pray that, if you don't even want to love your brothers and sisters and face it, we find ourselves there at different points in life, you should pray anyway. In fact, you might want to pray harder. Pray and ask God to give you the desire to be more loving. Petition your Father for a change of heart. Our Father loves to answer prayers that are offered to Him in accordance with His will. And we know that it's His will for us as His children that we be loving. He delights to answer prayers like that. Pray earnestly, pray persistently, and pray expectedly. Study. Spend time in the Word studying what it has to say about love. Now, we've just barely scratched the surface here this morning in the few minutes that we've had. But love and the different variations of the word are found over 500 times in the New American Standard. Get a good concordance, get some Bible software, do a word search, find those words, and go look at them. Some of the books that you might go to that have a high incidence of the, the word love are the Psalms, the Gospel of John, 1 John, and strangely enough, the book of Deuteronomy. Read those things. Make notes as you read. Write down what you're learning about love. What is the text telling you about love? Do this, and it will keep the concept of love in your mind, and it will begin to conform your heart to a godly standard of love. Read. In addition to the scripture, there are many good books that can encourage and inspire you. I brought a few here this morning. I mentioned this one already. This is Leading with Love by Alex Strauch, our good friend. It's an excellent book. Uh, This book is a Christian biography of a man named Robert Chapman. It was written by Robert Peterson. Some of you, I think, I heard a yes out there, Anna. This is an excellent book. Our ministry group spent almost a year studying the life of Robert Chapman. He was an early brethren leader and a servant of God that lived in England. He was born in 1803, and he died in 1902. And he was an amazing man. He devoted his life to love and service. And I'm going to read a little bit from the back. Uh, Charles Spurgeon called Robert Chapman the saintliest man I ever knew. Now, if you're getting some recommendations from guys like Charles Spurgeon, I think you've done something right. Although he's not widely known today, Robert Chapman was one of the most respected Christians of his generation. 
His caring and humble attitude had a marked impact on the lives of such men as George Mueller, J. Hudson Taylor, John Nelson Darby, and Charles Spurgeon. These notable men agreed that Chapman was a giant among them. Robert Chapman's life cannot help but challenge the Lord's people to deepen their devotion to Christ and love others more selflessly. Um, Good Christian biography is very, very important. It will direct your your mind towards service. It will give you examples to follow. And this is an excellent book. I encourage you to rush out. This is my copy. You can borrow it. I know we've got at least one in in the library. Uh, another person that I would not uh, fail to recommend for reading is read about George Mueller. This, is, this book is called George Mueller of Bristol. Most of you probably, is written by Arthur Pearson. Most of you probably know something about George Mueller. He also was a contemporary of Robert Chapman in England. He was a, a man of God. He was a servant of God. He had an amazing prayer life. He had an amazing gift of faith, and he poured his life into caring for others. He pretty much single-handedly started the orphanage movement in Great Britain at that time. I think I remember reading that at the time he got started, there were five orphanages in all of Britain, and they didn't accept just anyone. You had to have a rich benefactor that wanted to get rid of you to get into these orphanages. That all changed when George Mueller came along. He cared for literally thousands of orphans by just praying. He was not a rich man. He had no assets to speak of. He just prayed, and he loved and he served. Read about him. He will inspire you. We have many good resources available. Uh, I suggest that you talk to Ron and Kay Manis. I know that they know other books that are going to inspire you if you go to them. They can help you find good things like that. We have a wonderful library. Please use it. Uh, next, uh, reflect. Let's be thoughtful. Who do we know, who do we see that consistently serves out of love? We should watch those people. We should do what they do. We should imitate them. There are numerous examples in this body. Pay attention. How does our personal service compare to the standard that we saw in verses 4 through 7? We need to examine our service. We need to do this over time. We need to look at how we're serving and how we're loving. Another question is, will the young people and the children that are here now remember us as being loving? How are they perceiving us? Someday we will be turning this church over to all these rugrats that are running around here. Are we showing them an example of love? Do they know that we love them? These are critical questions for us. Reflection is a key strategy for increasing our love. Encourage, Hebrews 10.24. Somebody read that this morning in the worship service. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Write those thank you notes. That is encouragement to receive a thank you note. If you see someone serving selflessly in love, go to them. Don't pump them up. Don't, don't create a pride issue for them. But thank them. Say, thank you for doing that. I see the love of Christ in you. We need to be encouraging one another to do these things. Finally, invest. And this is probably the hardest suggestion for me to give, maybe the hardest one for you to receive, but I think it must be said. And when I say invest, I'm talking about investing our time. Brothers and sisters, there is no way that we can love the body and we can serve in the way that God wants us to serve without investing our time. And we live in an age that caters to our amusement, does it not? At home, I have something like 800 TV channels available to me. Not that I watch them all. The Internet can amuse us, even in benign ways, 24-7. It's always on, isn't it? There's no end to the restaurants that we can linger at, the sports we can enjoy, the movies we can watch the places we can travel to. There's just all kinds of things out there competing for our time. 
And there's nothing wrong with enjoyment. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with having pastimes. I'm not here to hammer on that either. But the problem arises when we load our calendars, we load our weeks and our years full of things that are fluffy, benign, and amusing, fun, we like them. But when we load ourselves up so heavily with those things, we don't have any time left to serve God. We don't have time left to minister to one another in love. The text we examined this morning will have no value for anyone who's not willing to give of their time. So my challenge and my advice for us all is not to stop all our enjoyable activities and replace it all with service. That would fail, and it would also probably be based on wrong motives. No, what I'd suggest is working to squeeze the fluff out of our schedules over time as we grow in love. Some ways to do this, drop a hobby now and then. Just drop it. Don't pick up a new one. Decline to start watching that popular new TV show when it comes out. You're not really missing much anyway. And if you do the math and you realize that if you pick up one half-hour TV show and you watch it for a year, you're going to spend 24 hours of your life that year on a TV show. That's a big investment of time. Use a vacation day for service to help somebody instead of using it for travel that would take us away from the body. These are some simple things. Maybe we don't necessarily want to do them, but there are some things that we ought to be considering if our goal really is to increase our service incrementally each year. And when we do this, when we increase in our service each year, when we upgrade our time and we spend it in better ways over time, we find that we have not missed out on anything. We find ourselves desiring service and delighting in serving the saints. We won't miss the fluff. We'll be energized and satisfied by the upgrade. Over a period of years, our lives will exhibit greater and greater measures of the image of Christ. Let's invest our time in love. So in conclusion, this text, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is about love. It's about love in the context of spiritual gifts. Its overall message is that love is the most essential ingredient in the exercise of spiritual gifts. Without love, our efforts are worthless. It gives us a detailed working description of love. We should use that description to monitor our performance, to look at our motives, to examine the ways that we are serving. And we should also look at that description and endeavor to have that be the type of legacy that we leave behind. This wonderful chapter tells us that our destiny as we wait for the Lord Jesus to return uh, is going to be love. Our gifts will cease when they're no longer needed, but love will never end. And investing our time and our efforts to grow in love will have an eternal payback. Now, if you've been listening to this message and are confused by all this talk of love, if you're not sure what this is about, if you've not received the love of the Lord Jesus, then I want to tell you that what we've talked about this morning is really the ending, not the beginning. We don't please Jesus because we serve him. Well, we please him when we serve him, but we do not come to him and get forgiven because we serve him. I want to point you to a verse, Romans 5, 8, which is, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were sinning, Jesus died for us. We weren't his friends. He died for us anyway. His love comes first. It's his love that saves us. It's his sacrifice on the cross that paid for our sins. And that's where we begin. The things that we talked about here as far as loving one another, that is a response to the love that we've already received from Christ. So make no mistake, we need to start with Jesus and ask him for forgiveness in order to be saved. And then we can start living and loving the saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the challenges that we find here. We thank you for the fact that you've given your love to us first, and now you're instructing us in how we should love one another. I pray that we might learn to use our spiritual gifts in love, to be effective, to have pure motives, and to build one another up to your glory. 
We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for your spirit. And we ask that he would continue to help us understand the things that you've given to us in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.